the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. What if I told you that this week I uh, received a letter on some pretty nice paper? had a letterhead on it. It was from a legal office that I'd never heard of. But this letter was telling me that I had received a massive inheritance from a relative that I'd uh, never heard of. In fact, I didn't know this relative even existed, much less had recently died and left me millions. Millions. What would you tell me to do? I mean, what was it? But listen, this isn't a nameless Nigerian prince who magically found my Hotmail account, right? <laughs> He's not just asking to borrow my bank account for a few weeks. I mean, it looks like it's probably a scam, 
but it looks kind of legit, what should I do? At least look into it, right? At the very least, I should look into it. G.K. Chesterton famously said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And though I don't know that this is exactly what he meant by that, I think that what's difficult about Christianity is not necessarily that it has moral rigor, although there is a particular ethical ethos to Christianity that is not easily lived out. I think what's really difficult is what Christianity is asking us to take on faith. That at the center of the universe is the state execution of a Jewish peasant who may have thought he was God, and who reportedly came back to life. That is not easy. And I think we tend to just figure, you know, since we live in the age of Elon Musk, vacations to the moon, billionaires funding research for the singularity when human consciousness can just upload to the cloud, right? We just sort of figure, do we, do we really need to believe in something so primitive as Jesus? Before we dive into the text this evening, I just want to say at the outset, I am not going to be able to convince anyone in this room that Jesus rose from the dead, definitely not in the next 20 minutes. But what is on offer in Christianity? What is on offer in the question, did Jesus rise from the dead, is an offer that makes anything Elon Musk could do for us look like a mud pie next to a sizzling steak with butter melted all over it. My apologies to the vegans, but come on. (laughs) You can smell it. What is on offer in Christianity isn't just a better quality of life. It isn't a longer life. It is life in an entirely new dimension. It is life in God's kingdom. That is what is on offer. And so tonight, I'm going to ask you to do three things. The first is just look into it. What do you have to lose? Look into the empty tomb and be willing to question yourself. Be willing to question and ask where the evidence actually leads. And then listen. Listen to the voice of the risen Jesus and wonder to yourself if you've ever heard a voice more loving or more filled with mercy. And finally, learn to live in the paradox of laying hold of him while letting go. Look, listen, and lay hold. One of the first arguments against Christianity's teaching on the resurrection is that ancient people were rubes who saw ghosts and things all the time. These people are just dumb, so of course they just assume someone rose from the dead, right? As we follow Mary and Peter and John, the disciple that Jesus loved, as they look into the empty tomb, the first thing we notice is that ancient people were not idiots. Even Jesus' closest friends and followers, people who had heard him say multiple times, I'm going to die and then rise again, they just assume what? Somebody stole the body. They assume someone has taken his body away. Even when John records that he looked in and saw the grave clothes lying there and believed, interpreters aren't really sure what he means by believed. It's not entirely clear. Did he believe that Jesus was alive? Or did he believe what Mary had already suggested, that someone has taken 
the body of Christ. After all, he says that he looked in it and believed, and then the next two lines he said, but we still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, and then what? We just went home. But in their looking into the empty tomb, they do start to wonder, what could have happened? After all, grave robbers would not have unwrapped the body. The grave clothes were were wrapped in spices to keep the stench of decomposition to a minimum. Nobody's going to undo all of that stuff, carefully fold it up, just for some sort of morbid, terrible prank. Another argument against the resurrection goes that these early followers of Jesus were intent on starting a new religion, so it's in their interest to spin the story that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And to that I would say just a couple of things. If the disciples were lying about this, they went about it in the absolute worst possible way for two reasons. The first is that they lived in a completely misogynistic culture. And you know what happens in all four of the gospel accounts? Who are the first people who witness the risen Christ and go and tell other people? The same people that would not be admissible in court, women. If you're going to make up a story, you're not going to shoot yourself in the foot that badly right out of the gate. The second reason that I think it's preposterous that they were just trying to make up a new religion is that They were part of a deeply monotheistic culture. Them even coming up with the idea of a man being God is so far beyond any fiction that it would be laughable if it weren't punishable by death. Which leads me to the third thing is that tradition has it that all of the apostles were martyred in very horrible fashion for refusing to stop declaring one thing, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've pulled some good pranks in my life, but I'm not willing to die for any of them. As I said at the outset, I can't convince you that Jesus rose from the dead, but I can say, look into it. Look into it. After all, what is on offer here, what resurrection is, isn't simply resuscitation. This isn't a heart patient on the operating table who went black for a little bit and then was jolted back moments later. No, resurrection is human life in an entirely different dimension. It is life in the kingdom of God, and what Jesus offers to all people is peace, yes, forgiveness, yes, reconciliation with God, yes, and resurrection life. Resurrection life is really difficult to describe because it is lived in the dimension of God, in the dimension of eternity. But it's life that is insusceptible to corruption. It is life that is lived in the radiance of the love and glory of God himself. It is life as it was meant to be, integrated fully in harmony. All those things that all of us feel every day is a part of the disjointed, disintegrated fact of the fallen universe. Resurrection life stitches all of that back together. Look into it. And as you stoop, like Mary, to look into the empty tomb, to perhaps question your own assumptions about what's possible, even more than that critical looking, I invite you to listen. This interaction with Mary and Jesus is so beautiful. Here is a woman who has had her hope utterly demolished. 
Mary was a woman who existed on the fringes of society, and the one person in the world who hadn't looked at her as a commodity or an oddity, someone who hadn't used her for their own personal pleasure and empowerment, but had instead looked at her intently, in the eyes, with love, calling out in her something she never knew existed. That man, Jesus, had been brutally killed right in front of her, and now she can't even weep near his body. She's completely undone. But what she's about to realize is that all life begins in a garden. Just as God created the world and then placed man and woman in a paradise-like garden, so here the locus of new resurrection life is birthed in a garden. So much so that she mistakes the first resurrected person to live in that life for a gardener. She thinks her Lord is the gardener. She's been weeping and wailing in the darkness of the early morning, her mind clouded over with grief and loss when she hears him call her name. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like? Jesus had said earlier in John's gospel, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep to bring and they will listen to my voice. I will call my sheep by name. Mary hears the voice of the good shepherd call her by name. This invitation to listen to the voice of the risen Christ, the good shepherd, is not a generic invitation. This isn't a Facebook evite that gets blasted to everyone as if people could be reduced to some algorithm. This same exact Jesus that was in that garden is still speaking, still calling, not just people, but persons. Persons by name, one by one. This is the God of the universe, the one who knows everything about you, including all the worst parts of you that you can't even admit to yourself, including all of the complex parts of you that you can't even understand. This is God speaking to you in the voice of the God-man who has trampled down death by death. The voice of Jesus calls each person by name. One of the ways that we believe that Jesus speaks and calls people to himself is through his word and the preaching of his word. And this is part of the reason that I don't feel compelled to try to convince you of something so outside the bounds of normalcy, something as weird as resurrection. You know why? Because I honestly believe that Jesus is speaking to you right now, in these moments, in ways that I couldn't possibly comprehend or plan for. I study all week. I try to write my sermons out so I don't stumble around in the dark too poorly up here. But what I really believe is that he is actually speaking to every person in this room in a way that I might remain completely unaware of. He speaks. That alone is the most gracious thing in the world. I believe that in the gathering of the church around the scriptures, that Jesus whispers through his spirit each person's name, calling to them, to turn like Mary and see the light of his resurrection. Another way that we believe that Jesus speaks and calls the name of an individual to bind that person to himself is in the water of baptism. 
In a moment, we are going to see two young children be brought by their parents to the font. We will pray, we will pour water, we will anoint with oil, and in that, these children, like all other baptized people, will truly encounter the risen Christ speaking their name, giving them their identity in him, in the resurrected life. As we look into the empty tomb and as we learn to listen, as we hear the voice of the good shepherd calling to us, I think that we will begin to learn the balance that Mary struck, laying hold of Christ with tenacity, refusing to leave his side, and at the same time letting go of him in a certain sense so that he might empower us for mission in his name to go about declaring his resurrection. The idea that life begins in a garden. In a moment, as these children come to the bath, we will ask their parents to commit to raising them in the light of Christ's love, that one day they may lay hold of him themselves in faith and then be pulled out into the world in his name to speak of his offer of life. That's what it means to be a baptized person. This is the pattern that Mary herself undergoes. Her name is called by the good shepherds and she turns to face him. She is an embodied picture of what conversion means. She turns away from herself, from her own sorrow, from her own confusion, and she turns toward Jesus. And just like in these moments of baptism, one moment is gonna clip into the next moment and it can feel just the same but in those moments of faith, it's as if the world comes off its axis. That brief second where Mary heard him and began to turn, the entire world changed. To lay hold of Jesus is to trust him. Even when we can't understand what resurrection life might look like or even mean, even when we have to leave the garden and let him leave the garden to go out into the world and declare, he's alive. He's alive. To lay hold of Jesus is to trust his goodness, to trust that his resurrection makes him the living proof that even though all of the world builders have rejected him, he has become the cornerstone, the foundational form upon which the entire new world will be built. And that this is a work of the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Did you catch that in the psalm? That means that Jesus' kingship is not democratically decided. It is not up for debate. There is no contest. He is king over all and there is a day coming when all who are in him will be given resurrected bodies like his and he will be all in all and everything will be put in subjection to him. The fact of his resurrection is why our church stands in the line of thousands of other churches over thousands of years who get up and declare over and over and over again, Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead because he is the only one who has defeated death. So complete is his victory over death that St. Paul can say, as we heard in our New Testament reading this evening, since then you have been raised with Christ, have been raised. Done deal. 
Since then you have been raised with Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In these moments of silence with perhaps some faint bell ringing, Listen. Listen to the voice of your shepherd. There is a true home, and he is beckoning you. Listen and lay hold of him with faith. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.